0: What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble.
1: Hello and welcome, and here we are again in the studios of 94.9 Main FM. I'm Steve Proposh,
0: And I'm Dr Mark Calloran,
1: And you're in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. So Mark, it should be a good one this week. We have Calvin Thompson, ex-politician.
0: Oh yeah, Calvin Thompson was an ex-federal politician and shadow attorney general for the Rudd government.
1: Right. What are you going to talk about with Calvin?
0: Well, we're going to talk about immigration. We're going to talk about sustainable population for Australian population growth, which I think that's Calvin's
1: background, environmental science. Calvin's been campaigning against the gambling industry, is that right? He mentions that as well, doesn't he? He worked for the Alliance for Gambling Reform. Right, yeah. Okay, well, this is going to be interesting. Let's get into it.
2: started off at a local level in terms of politics. What drew you towards politics and the Labour Party in particular? Mark, I was uh, born in Pasco Vale, grew up in Pasco Vale and still live in Pasco Vale. Uh,
3: when I was young, my, uh, one of my brothers and I developed an interest in Australian birds and plants and, and animals. My brother took his interest in plants off in the direction of a PhD in forestry and he discovered an acacia out in central Australia that was new to science and so on. But my interest became one in conservation and the environment and an increasingly political interest because I realized that it was governments, for better or for worse, which made the decisions that impacted on the environment and impacted on Australian birds and plants and animals. So in the uh, the Whitlam years, when I was about 19, I, I joined the Labor Party because I thought the Labor Party was best for the environment. Uh, and I like Gough Whitlam, I thought that his vision for Australia, the, the free and universal healthcare through Medicare, the free and universal education, no, no tertiary fees and universal pensions and, and things like that uh, and his idea of Australia's independent place in the world, they, they were things that I embraced as a, uh, as a young person and so uh, I joined the Labor Party. I tended not to be interested in student politics and so on, which quite a lot of my, you know, colleagues have a have a background in that. I was interested in the, the local community and and things like the public open spaces, which came out of the environmental interest. So, I was interested in the Merry Creek and the Coburg Lake and the Mooney Ponds Creek and and so on. So you tend to have dealings with your your local council and and councillors and you know, I came to their attention. They, they encouraged me to be involved in the Labor Party. This was a, uh, a Labor area and uh, in due course encouraged me to run for the local council. Your ideology was it different to your parents? Uh, my family has an interesting political uh, history, my mother's family had a strong Labor background Uh, My father's family had quite a strong liberal background. and Indeed, my um, grandmother on that side was secretary of the Port Fury branch of the Liberal Party and used to get Christmas cards from Malcolm Fraser. Um, So I heard it said later on that um, uh, she thought when I was a a youngster that you know one day I should be prime minister of Australia but I don't think she envisaged Labor prime minister of Australia that wasn't that wasn't what she had in mind at all but my father shared my journey into environmental issues and and into the political process through that window and we were supportive of John Gorton who we thought was a, a centrist prime minister with an interest in the environment so when the, the Liberal Party internally bumped him off as it were and replaced him with William McMahon my Father jumped ship and became allied with the Labor Party. Mum took a bit longer, but after the uh, to the dismissal of the Whitlam government by Sir John Kerr, she was scandalised by that and, and she jumped ship and supported Labor after that. Now, when I said their backgrounds were Labor and Liberal respectively, they both worked for. And met through the National Bank and that whole bank nationalization issue at the end of the 1940s was one that caused a lot of bank employees to become liberals. So, you know, when I grew up, it was uh, as a young person, it was in a liberal household. But,
1: you know,
2: later on, it became a, um, a quite strongly Labour one. You've taken intense interest, uh, as far as I can tell, over your career in terms of population growth and how that might affect Australia's future. You talked about Australia potentially sleepwalking into sort of an environmental disaster. Can you talk a little bit more about the background for that? Sure. The principal cause of environmental degradation and
3: destruction is us. It's not something else, something abstract it is us. And the the problems with water quality and salinity and the decline in in native species and, and all of that is driven by population and population growth. And when I was younger, I was somewhat concerned about population growth and its impact on the environment. But I believed the demographers who kept telling us at the time that it was all going to take care of itself, that it was all going to level out. And you know, there were projections done by parliamentary committees and the CSIRO and and so on in the 20th century, which suggested that Australia's uh, population would level out at less than 25 million, that it would stop growing. But as I got older, it became increasingly apparent to me that it was not going to stop growing at all. And indeed, the Howard government around 2004, so a few years after Tampa, which enabled them to sort of stamp themselves as anti-refugee and in the minds of a lot of ordinary Australians that they are anti-migration. In fact, they did the opposite. They, They ratcheted up the migration intake. And so Australia's population for the last decade and more has been increasing at the rate of about a million every three years. And so I realized from that that the population growth was not going to take care of itself. And indeed, Our population now is rising as rapidly and in sheer numbers is rising more rapidly than it's ever done. And you're now getting, you know, 100,000 people extra every year in Melbourne, for example. That is allied with the global issue, which is massive. You know, at the turn of the last century, the world's population was 2 billion people. And before then, it had bumped along, you know, for centuries and centuries, thousands of years at, at 1 billion and the like. And then in the space of a century, it goes from two to seven and a half billion, and it's continuing to rise at 80 million people each year. So globally, population growth is not showing any signs of leveling out. We're tracking for nine and a half, ten billion by mid-century and so on. And I think that the environmental impacts of that are massive and indeed the impacts on quality of life, people in Africa in particular, but in other countries whose existence and quality of life is dramatically, adversely impacted by the sheer numbers. And so, yes, I've been concerned about that and campaigned around that.
2: I suppose I'm wondering whether that has made your views on population growth has made you an outlier in the Labor Party or or amongst progressives. That's the first part of the question. And then I suppose, what is the solution and how do we come to a balance between ethical consideration in regards to refugees and environmental protection? Sure. In relation to whether my position makes me an
3: outlier, yes and no to that. I would say, well, no, it's not an outlying position at all, because if you ask the Australian people whether they support rapid population growth, every time they get asked this question, they say no, and and it's, you know, 60 to 70 percent, something like two-thirds say no. They don't want it. They don't support it. And the fact that you get these insurgent politicians and political parties bubbling up to the surface suggests to me that the mainstream political parties are not representing ordinary people on, on this issue. But yes, it's not a, a widely held position, certainly not in terms of public expression of position by Labor Party MPs and indeed for that matter by coalition MPs or Greens MPs and, and others. So it's, it's not politically fashionable and it's indeed a difficult issue to talk about because you always find people wanting to accuse you of being racist and so on and that is completely untrue and I I believe that we do have a duty to be uh, compassionate towards the the world's poorer people. But I, I don't believe that you can deal with that by having a policy of open borders that allows people to live in whatever country they wish to live in. I don't think that can work from an environmental point of view and it certainly won't work from a political point of view. So our obligation to be compassionate should express itself through things like the aid policy and the work that we do at the United Nations and so on. In relation to your question about dealing with this ethically, when I put forward a a policy to stabilise Australia's population growth, and I had a 14-point plan to, to do that, Mark, one of the points involved increasing the refugee intake, because I want to make it really clear that I believe that we should have a sympathetic attitude towards refugees and that most of our population growth has nothing to do with refugees and everything to do with the way in which the skilled migration and other components of the program have been ratcheted up overseas students and so on. So that it's quite possible for Australia to return its migration program to the net 70,000 that it used to be for much of the 1970s and 80s and, and for a fair part of our history but still at the same time have a higher refugee intake and to meet our, our international and our humanitarian obligations. I think the solution to refugee issues is clearly very complex and frankly it's been bedeviling governments for a long time now. And I think unless we get a handle on global population growth, it's going to continue to bedevil governments because you'll have people who are in very poor circumstances looking to move to countries which have greater prospects and opportunity. And if I was in their situation, I'd be doing exactly the same thing. So until we're able to tackle global population growth and provide people with real prospects in their own country, you can expect to have refugee issues. I believe that we need to deal with this collectively at an international level where there are roles to be played by various countries. And in relation to Australia, as I said, if we were increasing our refugee intake, then we could come to that debate in good moral standing and to say to other countries, we are prepared to play a role. We need you to be prepared to play a role as well. Other countries are in our region and, and throughout the world, given that you know, precisely, this same debate's going on in Europe and elsewhere. So, I think that we can do much better than we we have been doing. But I don't want to be so starry-eyed as to tell you that you know I think there's a a silver bullet or an easy answer to this question. I think it's unfortunate that the debate that we should be having about migration basically never occurs and always becomes a debate about refugees. And I think that in a sense, both sides of that argument, those who want to take a hard line on refugees, you know, the the, Tony Abbott's of the world and those who who are highly sympathetic to refugees in the uh, Greens and some of the NGOs and so on, tend to want to make the migration debate about refugees when. In my view, as a nation, we'd be better served if that debate was put in perspective and not allowed to become an hysterical, out-of-perspective debate, and we had a, a more mature and rational debate about the migration program more broadly, because that is, in reality, a much bigger thing than the refugee intake.
1: You're listening to Deep Trouble, Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with the Honourable Calvin Thompson.
2: said the population growth is negatively correlated with the length and term of a government uh, and as population grows the terms of the stability of government becomes less and less is that such a bad thing well i would say
3: if governments are being chucked out all the time that's a sign that the electorate is unhappy and so in australia we had a lot of political stability in the, the post-war years and governments that were there for long periods of time and even at the state level as recently as the 80s and 90s, you'd see governments like the Brax government and the Carr government and so on serving for, for over a decade, whereas now you see governments being elected for one term and then being thrown out after one term as happened to the Liberals in, in Victoria, one term and then then they're out. Or in Queensland, Labor was reduced to a handful of seats and yet the government was thrown out after one term there. So these remarkable swings of the political pendulum, which say to me that people are unhappy with how the government is dealing with these things. I think that one of the reasons the Brumby Labor government was defeated in Victoria was the consequences of rapid population growth, particularly in in Melbourne, and the impacts that that had, that people were unhappy with that. So they turned to the Liberals and then the Liberals didn't do any better, so they throw them out. And, And the risk, frankly, for Victorian Labor government now or future governments is if they fail to deal with rapid population growth in Melbourne any better, that they will be thrown out. So that sort of political instability is a sign of unhappiness and that the voters aren't getting what they want from their elected representatives. And I'd suggest to you too that there are other signs of this in the strength of insurgent political candidates both in Australia and in other parts of the world. So when I was a youngster, the way you learned your politics, most people, over 90% of people, voted either Labor or Liberal. A small number of people voted for somebody else, but it it tended to be at an ordinary election. Over 90% are voting for one or other of the major parties. Gradually over the years, the number of people who are rejecting the major parties, making a conscious decision to walk past them and, and support a minor party, sometimes it's minor parties of, of the left like the Greens, sometimes it's minor parties of the right like One Nation or Australian Conservatives or even uh, a minor party of the middle, Nick Xenophon in, in South Australia, they are picking up those parties and candidates and supporting them And and in terms of insurgent candidates more broadly I draw your attention to the, the United Kingdom Independence Party and Brexit, uh, to Marine Le Pen in in France, and of course everyone's talking about Donald Trump in the US. So you have those insurgent candidates running against the mainstream political parties and political forces, and the fact that they're having the success that they're having and the fact that the political pendulum is swinging as, as rapidly as it is suggests to me that people aren't happy. And when I was younger, you know, at the council, you had councillors who were around for 20 or 30 years, had these very long careers as councillors. Now, I see a tremendous amount of turnover at local government level, councillors getting in and being voted out after just one term. So that feels to me, Mark, as if people are not happy with their elected representatives and their political leadership. And it's what they say, too. You know, when you're talking to people, the attitude towards politicians and parties and the political process there's uh, there's a lot of cynicism around it there always has been some I'm not saying there's a golden age when everyone loved their <laughs> loved their representatives and hero worship them but i i think it's become more serious and and deeper you know that but before basically people accepted that their politicians were trying to look after them and were you know essentially trustworthy and now i i, I don't know that you can say that
2: In terms of the rapid turnover of governments, one of the issues may be that a government can no longer govern with courage or vision, that it might encourage governments to try and uh, pick small targets, which they often do anyway. Yes, that's right, Mark, because it does feed into so many issues,
3: so... uh uh, you know, we're here in, in Melbourne, which, as I say, is increasing by the best part of 100,000 people a year. That means a whole lot of extra people living in each suburb that causes house prices to go up. So you have uh, reduced housing affordability. It causes rents to go up. So you have an increase in homelessness, potentially a, an increase in crime. You have traffic issues and, and everyone talks about traffic congestion You get infrastructure backlogs, the schools and hospitals and roads and so on, don't keep pace with that increase. You have a lot of uh, almost ferocious competition for entry-level jobs, unskilled jobs. So you have a significant number of people who find it difficult to get permanent and secure employment. You have impacts on the public open space and strong planning debates when property developers want to build high rise and so on and say, oh, well, you know, I can make a lot of money out of doing this. And people need housing and other people living in the streets say, well, this is this is wrecking our street. I don't want this to happen. So you have those very strong arguments, impacts on biodiversity, on climate change and all, all sorts of things where a disconnection with nature issues that I think are driving political unrest and instability. And I'll give you just another analogy, not from Australia, about the population growth and the political process. At the time of independence, both Samoa and the Solomon Islands had a population of about half a million people. Samoa still has a population of roughly half a million people. Now, quite a lot of their people have migrated to other countries, but that's not my point. They have a relatively stable population. And they've had the same political party in office for 20-something years and effectively the same political leadership for 20-something years, so a high degree of political stability. Solomon Islands started with half a million people and its population has quadrupled during the same period. The Solomon Islands has been beset by tribal and ethnic tension. I remember going and and visiting there and um, saying they were basically afraid to reopen their parliament the parliament hadn't sat for a long time. I'm basically afraid to reopen it because the government was certain there'd be a no-confidence motion carried to bring down the prime minister. So you have a high degree of instability and that's generated by the, the problems of tackling this rapid population growth. Whereas, you know, Samoa is all calm and under control. People are content with their leadership and there's no move to change them.
2: That's interesting because quite often the, the conversation is around increases in population being correlated with increases in economic potential I think if you
3: had a choice between being born in China and being born in Australia you would opt for the latter China has increased its uh, economic strength no question about that but the standard of living for the average person in Australia is still far exceeds that for the average person in China and of the wealthiest per capita countries mark around the world when I was doing some uh, research on this a number of years back. Overwhelmingly, I think the only exception was the United States, but of the wealthiest per capita countries around the world, overwhelmingly they had populations of 20 million and less and even 10 million and less. So Scandinavian countries, Northern Europe and so on, were the the richest and most successful nations in the world and they had small and relatively stable populations. And I would also say that China's population its rate of population growth now is less than what it used to be, and if had China continued the kind of population growth that it had experienced in previous decades, it wouldn't have been able to make the the leap forward economically that it has. But to say that we will achieve economic growth and prosperity through population growth, in my view, is just fanciful. It's like saying if you add more people to Pleasant Street, that the street will be richer and wealthier. Well, in aggregate terms, yes, but it doesn't make me any richer or wealthier at all. The individuals don't derive any benefit from that whatsoever. So I I think that the economic argument is misconceived. In relation to the question about the problem being governments and their failure, well, I sort of think, Mark, well, if if this is right, how come no one is ever able to solve this problem? Like all the governments in Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland and so on, where there are rapidly growing populations, they all seem to, to fail. And you know, the, the idea that those governments are um, uh, lazy or corrupt or incompetent, it's not true. They're, they're actually very intelligent people running those governments, but they can't solve the problems of, of rapid population growth. There's a Queensland academic by the name of Jane O'Sullivan who's done research on this question and she calls it the burden of infrastructure, population in a, infrastructure provision in a growing population. And it's a bit of a mouthful and it's a very academic piece. But what she says is that infrastructure generally ages at the rate of 2% a year has to be turned over every 50 years. You're averaging out all the schools and hospitals and roads and everything else. So you've got to set aside 2% of your income every year to meet your infrastructure replacement task. Otherwise, you'll you'll go backwards. But if your population is increasing by 1% per annum, you need that provision immediately. Otherwise, you'll you'll go backwards and fall behind. And 2% plus 1% that's a 50% increase in the task. Or if your population is increasing at 2% a year, that's 2% plus 2%. That that is a doubling. Of the infrastructure task, and yet you've only got 2% extra people to pay for it. So she says, governments in rapidly growing population never are able to meet the infrastructure requirement. They always fall behind. There are always arguments, so they end up selling assets. You know, we uh, we, we have to sell off government assets because you know we need that money to provide the infrastructure or the roads can't be free anymore we've got to put a toll on them in order to be able to pay for the new roads that we have to build and you get all those sorts of things going on that are a sign that governments can't cope and it's not that they're hopeless or incompetent or whatever it's a built-in thing whereas if they were in a stable population and they only had to set aside the two percent each year it'd be much easier to do.
2: Your federal career spanned the Rudd, Gillard, Rudd years. you were in Kevin Rudd's shadow ministry, your shadow attorney general at one point. What was your experience of that?
3: It was essentially disappointing because obviously I'd spent a lot of my political life in, in opposition. I was uh, first elected to the State Parliament in 1988 when Labor was in government and then we went into opposition in Victoria in 1992 and of course it took us and then I went into the Federal Parliament in 1996 and we went into opposition in the Federal Parliament. It took us till 2007 to be elected into government. So I'd been in opposition for 15 years and I was very keen for us to get into government, Mark, and very excited about us getting there, and that the whole process of government was very disappointing. There were a lot of things that Labor did in that time that that we did well, and managing Australia through the GFC, uh, we did notably better than you know, we, we're given credit for by political opponents. But the political management of that period was pretty terrible. And so questions about Kevin's personal style and how he ran the government and seeking to concentrate decision-making in his own hands and and so on, and then not really being able to make (laughs) decisions and paralyzing the process. I think that was very disappointing. And then after Julia Gillard took over as leader, we had a poor election result, which undermined her to the point of crippling her. The fact that there was a hung parliament after that, but then some of the, the undermining that, that she was subjected to and the the internal destabilization together with some of the, again, the political management of that period and well, the thing that I'm doing now with the Alliance for Gambling Reform, my experience of gambling reform nationally was that period where Julia Gillard and Andrew Wilkie sought to bring in mandatory pre-commitment and that was a, a very poor exercise with poor decision-making at very senior levels. So... It ended up being a a disappointing experience and I I think a lot of Labor supporters felt let down by the political management of of that and we were thrown out on area pretty unceremoniously in
2: 2013. You suffered a a blow in 2006 in terms of the support letter for Tony Mockbell. Mm. Do you feel like that was unfair, the way that was handled, because you were removed as Shadow Attorney General?
3: Mark, I offered to resign at the time and uh, understood that that was a mistake on my part to have provided that letter. I didn't know him and, and uh, the letter shouldn't have been provided. So I accepted that and resigned at the time. Yes, it was very disappointing for me. I'd worked very hard for the the Labor opposition during those opposition years and before that. So at a personal level, it um it was very disappointing, but nevertheless, we had had a lot of opportunities coming into government in in 2007, and plenty of things to to look forward to, and and you know, embraced those opportunities and got into the work of of the Parliament. It's uh, I chaired the Joint Standing Committee on Treaties, and I chaired the Caucus Committee on Sustainable Australia, which dealt with environmental issues and things like the marine parks and beyond the Great Barrier Reef and there were plenty of important issues and and worthwhile issues that I contributed to.
2: It seemed as though a long-term in opposition lent to a government that was tumultuous. There was something about coming in after such a long period of almost disenfranchisement in the years of I and John that did something almost psychologically to a government.
3: You're probably right that the period in opposition, being a, as long as it was, did lead to some, you know, pent up appetite to do things quickly. That was certainly true in, in, yeah, in my experience of the Whitlam years, where uh, the Whitlam Labor government had been in opposition for for 23 years, and uh, after Gough got in every day, he would make a significant decision, so he had the Australian electorate, he had their head spinning with the the breathtaking pace at which he he made decisions. The government wasn't helped by the the global financial crisis, of course, that was quite unexpected and and governments generally around the world that were in during the global financial crisis were thrown out at at elections after that, where the electorate blamed them fairly or unfairly for some of the, the things that went on during that period. But we were in a better position in a, in Australia to deal with it and I feel that we should have been able to retain the, the support of the public through that period and, and we did not. And some of the things that internally that people were happy to leak against their colleagues and so on, and I'm not saying it's the only government where that ever happened, Mark, there's, a, there's always some of that going on. But I think that the unity and discipline and loyalty that people expect from their political leaders and that Labor Party members were entitled to expect of us as a parliamentary party that we let ourselves down
1: in that regard. You're listening to Deep Trouble, Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with the Honourable Calvin Thompson.
2: We'll move on to, um, you work for the Alliance for Gambling Reform. My impression is you're in the second term of the Gillard government. You had a significant role. And I suppose one of the devastating blows, maybe it wasn't that devastating, but it was the, the crumbling of the gambling reforms that the Gillard government tried to get through at that point. Was that the catalyst for moving you into your current field and role?
3: I think market was my key experience of gambling issues as a, a federal MP because normally gambling regulation is carried out at the state level, but there was an unusual situation. After the, the 2010 election where the Gillard government was in a hung parliament and one of the independent members, Andrew Wilkie, was strongly anti-gambling, anti-poker machines and he indicated that as a condition of his support that the federal government needed to introduce mandatory pre-commitment for people betting on poker machines and the government agreed to do that. It met with uh, considerable resistance from clubs New South Wales and in particular also clubs in other parts of Australia who would be impacted on by this and, and that campaign led to a number of members of parliament fearing that they could lose their electorates to strengthen those local campaigns and that in turn fed into some undermining of Julia Gillard more more broadly by people who wanted to bring Kevin Rudd back into the leadership. So. It put Julia Gillard in a very difficult position. Um, having said that, I don't support the decision which she took, which was to uh, abandon the reforms and the, the changes, that it was not the, the right course of action to go down and the, um, uh, the related matter of in, installing Peter Slipper as the Speaker went very poorly and I think they were poor decisions taken at, at that time. After I retired, I didn't retire from Parliament with the intention of going to work for the Alliance for Gambling Reform. I didn't retire with the intention of going to work for anybody. but I did six months in retirement, you know catching up with family and you know, catching up on sleep and improving you know doing uh, bushwalking with my daughter and endeavouring to improve my health, which had taken a turn for the worse in the previous year. But after six months, mark, I thought i'm I'm getting a bit bored here, I need to do something useful. And so I, I saw the uh, it was a part time job advertised with the Alliance for Gambling Reform, and I, and I thought that that fits with my values. I, I don't want to go and work in the the corporate world and be a you know, corporate lobbyist or something like that. I, I do want to do something that, that has public interest to it and and seeks to tackle a, a problem. And, and yes, arising out of the Gillard Wilkie period on mandatory pre commitment, I you know, had this sense of unfinished business and and that Australia has a, a serious gambling problem. We, we are the world's largest gamblers per capita by quite some margin and you know have 20% of the world's poker machines and less than one-half of 1% of the world's population. So I felt like, yeah, we can do better than this. I'd gone through, in, as a Victorian, I'd gone through Victoria being a, a wowser state where you had to get on a bus and go interstate in order to find a poker machine across cross the River Murray. To becoming something like Las Vegas, and I felt like, and still feel like, you know, the pendulum has swung too far, and we need we need to pull it back. And so, in in putting in for the job with the Alliance for Gambling Reform, I'm, you know, I've, I've sought to do that, and I'm seeking to do that.
2: You talked about Australia essentially as a nation having a problem with gambling, and I wonder why that is.
3: It's interesting though that now that I've started doing this, I I run into people in the in the street or while I'm doing the garden out the front, and they'll they'll say to me, you know, what are you doing now? And I start telling them about the Alliance for Gambling Reform and what I'm doing. And when I open the door to that, it's remarkable the number of people who say to me things like, oh, my mum's got a terrible problem, or or, gambling cost me my first marriage, or you know, I start um, talking about their personal stories in a way which they didn't when I was a member of Parliament, but but because I've opened the door to the discussion about gambling, the number of people who who are affected by it in some way in their in their family is is quite remarkable. So I've been very aware of that since I took on the job.
2: Why do you think, as a nation, we we have an issue? Uh, that is an excellent question. Uh, yeah, uh, look, I am not
3: sure why it is uh, as substantial as it is. In the 1950s, poker machines were basically outlawed throughout the world, but not in New South Wales. And New South Wales became the you know, the, the world's leading place for poker machines. I guess the other states felt under pressure to, you know, the, the Victorian government was constantly told that, you know, you're bleeding revenue to New South Wales because people are going across the border to gamble there. Although, interestingly, Mark, when we brought in poker machines into Victoria, It didn't make a great dent in New South Wales gambling or revenue, which the lesson from that is that poker machines, a lot of it's about accessibility. The more machines closer to people you put in, the more gambling is is going to go on. There's not a whole lot of displacement goes on. But that New South Wales history, which is different from what went on in other parts of the world, might be a, a big factor. But yeah, I mean, there are certainly gambling issues in other, in other countries as well. I'm not suggesting they, they don't have their problems. And I, I read this uh, report, which is provided to us each day from New Zealand of all places, which is a sort of roundup of world news concerning gambling. And you see in the, the UK, the US, Asia, various parts of the world that that gambling is, is problematic, but yeah, for whatever reason, we have it worse than elsewhere. Now, it does relate to the number of poker machines. Western Australia does not have poker machines in their pubs and clubs. They only have poker machines at their casino and their gambling per head is conspicuously less than that of Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland. They have roughly the same amount of gambling on lotto, on racehorses at their casino. Roughly the same amount of gambling there, but not gambling on poker machines as we do. So that
2: is pretty important in explaining why why we have the levels we do. Poker machines in particular are a multi-billion dollar industry and my memory serves me on this government collect about 8 to 10% in revenue at a state level. I don't know what it is at a federal level. The question has been asked, are governments addicted to gambling? Well, uh, in a sense, absolutely.
3: And they they believe that they need the revenue and find it difficult to imagine getting by without it. For what it's worth, I don't think that revenue problem is as big as it's often made out to be. Now in Victoria, $2.6 billion is lost to poker machines each year. And the amount of gambling harm that that represents in the community is very great. Mark and I, I feel we ought to reduce it. The Victorian government's revenue from this source is around a billion dollars a year. And to some people, that, that will sound like a lot of money. But, you know, when I was in the federal parliament, a billion dollars wasn't that much, frankly. There were ministers who spent that amount of money almost every time they opened their mouth. And when the Victorian government announced their latest road project or something, and then, you know, it'll be $10 billion. And you think, well, if you weren't proceeding with that, you you wouldn't need the poker machine revenue for a decade. So, so it's true that governments get a lot of revenue and they love the revenue from the machines. So yes, they have a, a strong vested interest in keeping them. But the idea that you couldn't live without it, I'm, I'm more sceptical about that. And, it, and it's it's not the alliance's position that we're going to drop all of the poker machines in Port Phillip Bay and that and that this industry will will disappear. It is our desire to reduce gambling harm. And there are measures that we can take that will reduce gambling harm. And yes, they will reduce government revenue, uh, but it's certainly not a question of getting rid of the machines altogether.
2: I would seem to remember the Kane government of Victoria was against, always against introducing pokies and, and the Kerner government introducing this great relief in terms of the government finally being in the black. But what are the real social and economic harms to the community from what sounds like a pervasive culture of gambling?
3: We talk about the revenue to government that comes from gambling as the industry does. There's not enough in the way of information about the costs of gambling and a lot of those costs end up with various levels of government. The costs of crime, the costs of homelessness, the costs of mental health issues, the costs of family violence, there are all sorts of things where research is showing a link between gambling and and those impacts and which do have a, a bottom line as well as massive personal and family costs. So I think we should understand this better and appreciate that there's a, a lot on the other side of the, the ledger as well. And you know, when the industry says that the sky'll fall in without without the machines, that the evidence is rather different from that and that, you know, Western Australia doesn't have the machines outside the casino and their sporting, cultural and community life is in good working order. And so, yes, we should be taking into account the the social costs and the health costs and so on. And the the cases of people whose lives and whose families are blighted by gambling almost inevitably ends up involving taxpayer costs in, in terms of health care or in terms of housing provision, social security provision and, and the like. Sometimes these costs fall at the the federal level or at the local government level and you get that mismatch that we have through our constitutional arrangements. But as a community, we've got to be able to work our way through that and say, look, we'd be better off without these costs and do what we can to reduce gambling harm. And and we see it as an issue like smoking, alcohol, traffic accidents and and so on, that it should be seen as a, a public health issue where
2: you can take actions that reduce the harm. The emphasis in terms of the, the public campaign is around personal responsibility. Gambling has been reclassified in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Illness, so the North American Guide to Psychiatric Disorder, from obsessive compulsive disorder uh, not otherwise specified to an addiction alongside cocaine dependence disorder. We don't recognise that legally, don't we? There is a concerted public relations campaign, which is guided by government and by the gambling industry, to say that if you've got a problem with gambling, it's your fault.
3: That's right, Mark. The industry view is that gambling is a uh, uh, legal, safe, uh, essentially harmless recreation spoiled only by a handful of people who manage to get themselves addicted and kind of you know spoil it for everybody. So yes, if you get addicted, it's because you haven't gambled responsibly, i.e. you've been irresponsible, you've burn a mug and it, it contributes to a, a great sense of stigma around gambling and therefore, it makes it very hard for, for us to um, help people where they're reluctant to admit to having a gambling problem. I've even heard stories in relation to the criminal justice system of people who who've committed uh, criminal acts who don't fess up to gambling being the cause of it. They'd they'd rather be thought a bad person than uh, than having a, uh, a a gambling problem. But in reality, the machines themselves have built-in addictive features. The electronic gaming machines are different from the old uh, one-armed bandits, the mechanical machines, and things like. Losses disguised as wins, you know, playing music and flashing lights and so on when you've actually lost money or uh, near misses where the length of the reels is different and the, it looks like you you nearly won because all the all the icons came up except one, and that that's done you know ten times or a dozen times more often than happens mathematically or statistically. That makes it different from, say, betting on a horse race where you can see whether you, you know if your horse came third or sixth or whatever, you can see where it came and what the margin was. And so those things are built-in addictive features and it means that it's really the machine that's the problem rather than the gambler. And the Alliance for Gambling Reform is very anxious to have people understand that and to look at this as a public health issue rather than a personal responsibility issue.
2: In the uh, documentary, Ka-ching, Pokey Notion, Peter Garrett talks about his stance which he says was quite a practical one, Uh, wasn't about abolition, wasn't about removal completely of poker machines but around control around the harm that they can potentially do. He essentially stated that he was the victim of a concerted public relations campaign by the gambling industry had been trained by the NRA in terms of how to uh, to lobby governments. And Rob Oakeshott, a former independent MP, he stated in the same documentary that the gambling industry isn't lobbying Labor and Liberal governments, it's essentially embedded within them. How do you solve that?
3: Well, they certainly do have a lot of firepower and uh, the capacity to campaign very energetically. I think there ought to be uh, campaign donations restrictions in this area. I know it's a vexed issue and, of course, you want to see uh, freedom of political expression and communication. But I I think the the downside of gambling industry uh, campaign donations is very, very great and that Australia's political system would be better served without it. In terms of harm reduction, we think that there are things that governments can do which would reduce harm but don't involve, as I say, throwing all the machines in Port Phillip Bay. And things like maximum $1 bets, uh, machinery designed to remove some of the addictive features, giving councils more say in where machines go and how many there are. Reducing the operating hours, you're no doubt aware, Mark, that in Victoria the venues can operate for 20 hours a day, and so um, you know Woolworths pubs, a lot of them will be open at 5am in the morning and then reopen at 9am in the morning, and that that is a recipe for disaster. It's it's nonsense that it's about shift workers or something, and they will campaign energetically, but I I think that we can cut back the opening hours and do things like that that will genuinely reduce. Gambling harm, maximum one dollar bets, and, and so on. In terms of how do we win the battle, I am encouraged. I'm not naive about their level of political influence. I think we're conspicuously better placed in Victoria than we are in, in New South Wales and, and Queensland. And that uh, access to information and you know, outfit like the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation. It's got a terrible name, but it does a lot of a lot of good work and is quite an effective body. You just don't see that in New South Wales and Queensland. Uh, in Victoria, a lot of the local councils have been very progressive on this issue. They've been at the heart and soul of the Alliance for Gambling Reform and, and leading the charge in many of these policy initiatives and in local campaigns. And so I see some positive features out of that. And I would also observe that uh, with the forthcoming Tasmanian and South Australian elections, there are very interesting and um, encouraging signs there. You have the Tasmanian Labor opposition saying that they would withdraw all the machines from pubs and clubs and leave them, confine them to the casinos, so same as Western Australia, within a five year period. And so, you know, a, a bold and radical policy like that is uh, ensuring that poker machines and gambling is, a, is an election issue in Tasmania. And in South Australia, uh, Nick Xenophon has announced an intention to return to the state parliament whence, whence he came. And of course, having a background as a no pokies campaigner, he has been asked about, well, what would you do about poker machines? And he said, you know, I'll announce it soon and it'll be big. So, and, and, and uh, Nick Xenophon is, by all accounts, uh, not going to be a fringe player in, in South Australia. His level of political support is such that that could be a significant announcement. So, I, I think that there are positive signs on the horizon in those couple of states. Uh, we'll, we'll wait and see uh, whether those policies get put into effect there, but I think there is reason to believe that we can pull the pendulum back, as I said, from the, the uh, extreme level that it, that it seems to have gone to in Australia towards uh, an area where the harm's been reduced. We have been able to reduce harm from uh, smoking. We have been able to reduce harm from alcohol and traffic accidents. and you know. It, Public health areas like this has been a lot of leadership by governments and support from the community, and and you have seen better outcomes. And you know, I I believe we can do the same thing with gambling.
2: Thank you for your time, Calvin Thompson. You're welcome, Mark.
1: All right. You're in deep trouble. That was Kelvin Thompson. And Mark, I guess we have to come clean on this one. That interview was recorded earlier this year. The reference to Nick Xenophon would have given that one away.
0: Yeah. So that was recorded, I think, in January this year. And obviously Nick Xenophon didn't do so well in terms of his transition to state politics.
1: No, and he didn't have a chance to get those gambler reforms through. So do you think Kelvin's optimism is well-founded at the end of that interview there?
0: Well, I think One of the most interesting parts of the interview for me was the discussion about the Wilkie reforms with Julia Gillard. So we know that Julia Gillard was facing a hung parliament and she had to woo some independents, and Andrew Wilkie was one of them. And the only way she could get him across was to meet him middle way on some of his gambling reforms, such as the limits on the amount that you can bet. So setting a limit. Right, yep. Those reforms were profoundly defeated And the Gillard government had to backflip on this issue, and it was one of the issues that probably broke the government. As we know from talking to Tim Costello, who compared the gambling industry in Australia to the NRA in America, Mm. it's an incredibly powerful industry, an industry uh, that campaigns like no other here and so, I mean, I know that there are various institutions running public awareness campaigns around gambling harm, and Tim Costello did say that they'd lost the first case, the Morris Blackburn case, but they also lost the first cases with cigarette companies in terms of cigarettes right, being associated yeah. with cancer. Yeah. I think it's a long road because I think people are terrified of cancer and it's taken us a long time to get where we are with cigarettes and I think it'll take us a very long time to make significant reforms on gambling.
1: Indeed the cigarette companies were very powerful lobbyists also at the time so the gambling industry kind of takes the cake in this country I think They're, they're extremely powerful
0: extremely powerful they uh, they don't just lobby state and federal governments they're essentially embedded within them as uh, the independent mp rob oakeshott observed in the documentary
1: catching pokey nation right interesting stuff though mark and i want to thank the honorable kelvin thompson for giving us his time in that way and uh, another excellent interview mark another excellent deep trouble interview mate i do what i can well well done You, you do it very well and who have we got next week
0: Next week, we've got Indian Fijian poet Manisha Anjali.
1: Manisha Anjali. And what are you going to talk to her about? Have you got anything lined up?
0: Well, I think we're going to talk about her poetry, her work. And we're also going to talk about the uh, history of British indenture for the Indians who were brought to Fiji uh, right. as part of that
1: system. It's a very interesting story. I did actually see Manisha perform at the Newstead short story tattoo a couple of years ago. And yeah, it's, it's not a very well-known story, so I'm looking forward to this. Thank you for being with us for another week.
3: Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine.